Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash recommend today. Want to teach your kids financial literacy but not sure where to start? Greenlight can help. With Greenlight, parents can keep an eye on kids' spending and saving, while kids and teens use a card of their own to build money confidence. As a parent, you can send instant money transfers, set up chores, automate allowance, and more. It's a convenient way to run your household, customized to your family's needs, and the easy way to raise financially smart kids. Get started with Greenlight today and get your first month free at greenlight.com slash odyssey. A word of warning. This podcast explores graphic and disturbing stories and includes some strong language. It therefore may not be suitable for our young listeners or other folks who may find it disturbing. Hello and welcome to a special edition of True Crime Daily, the podcast. I'm your host, Anna Garcia. Everyone in the world of true crime has a story to tell about a case they worked on or that they lived through. Some are high profile, some you've never heard of, but they are all fascinating. Today's case is about the murders of a billionaire couple, Barry and Honey Sherman. The Toronto power couple were in their 70s and they were well known for being very generous, donating millions to hospitals and other charities. Barry made his fortune in pharmaceuticals, specifically generic drugs. Barry didn't make his billions without making some enemies along the way. In December of 2017, Barry and Honey were discovered tied to a railing along an indoor pool Inside their mansion, their bodies appeared to have been staged. They're being held up with belts. Now, when it was first reported, it was reported as a possible murder-suicide and then reclassified as a murder. To this day, there are no suspects. The Billionaire Murders is a book, a podcast, and a docuseries based on the investigative work of Toronto Star reporter Kevin Donovan, who will join us in a minute. But first, here is a clip from the new docu-series streaming on Crave. 911, she says, somebody has killed my clients. I got a phone call from my friend, and she said, did you hear what happened to the Shermans? Barry and Honey Sherman were one of Canada's wealthiest and most philanthropic couples. These two leading business lights, social lights in Toronto, dead. It's an atom bomb that goes up in Toronto and around the world. How could this happen? Why did this happen? From early on, the Toronto police are considering this a murder-suicide. Not one person that knew them believed for one minute that it was a murder-suicide. The police were, if you'll pardon the expression, full of shit. I find out from my sources that the Shermans were victims of double homicide. That goes to press and everything explodes. I wonder if somebody's mad at Barry and they want to do something horrible to him. I remember him saying something that's so weird about cutting off Barry Sherman's head and rolling it down the parking lot. A family member had said, watch your back. The bodies were found in a seated position, like the sculptures in their home. These were things that were done deliberately. This crime just reeks of somebody they know and maybe even someone very close to them. His sister is suggesting that he's involved in the murder. Why can't they find who did it? Could this case remain unsolved? I do think that one day the murders of Barry and Honey Sherman will be found out. I have a theory of the case. I have a belief that I know who did it. Welcome now, Kevin Donovan, the chief investigative reporter for the Toronto Star. Kevin is also the host of the Billionaire Murders podcast, and he wrote a book about this mystery. Thank you, Kevin, for making the time to join us today. It's such a pleasure. Thanks for having me on today. Kevin, it feels like this case was botched from the very beginning, and you were one of the first reporters to say to the police, wait a minute, you really think this is a murder-suicide when they were both tied to the railing? Yeah, what happened in this case is that the, what I would call the 
the Keystone cops uh, were assigned to the case, the, the police made a series of mistakes uh, from the first day. Uh, the lead homicide detective doesn't go to the crime scene on day one, doesn't go until day four. Uh, video that should have been collected is not collected. And the pathologist that came to the scene, which in Canada is a little bit unusual to have a, a forensic pathologist show up, but, but one was called by the police, looked at uh, them tied to the railing uh, and then did postmortems. Uh, and while the pathologist noticed uh, ligature marks underneath the belts, uh, showing that the belts were not the method of, of death, and noticed that the hands were actually tied and then there were no ties found at the scene, even though that pathologist saw that stuff and the police saw it in the autopsy room, they labeled it as undetermined, most likely murder suicide. And it wasn't until the Sherman family hired a second pathologist and then I got wind of that pathologist results that uh, we published a story that led the police to uh, change the tune. That's amazing. It was what, like a month later that the police had to say publicly, this is no longer a murder suicide, but this is indeed two murders. Yeah. So what happened is through my sources, I was able to uh, access the, the second uh, postmortems and uh, we published a story five weeks after the bodies were found saying they were murdered. And then uh, the police chief uh, in Toronto, uh, who's actually now running for mayor, he asked the homicide squad to interview the people that I had interviewed. I'd named the, the second pathologist in the front page. And then a couple of days later, they have a press conference saying uh, they were mur murdered and they were targeted is what the police said. And not just that Barry was targeted, Barry and Honey were targeted, which to me is key in this case. Well, thank goodness you were in charge of this investigation. I That's ludicrous to me. That's just ludicrous. OK, so it's botched from the beginning. And that makes me think that when you do not have the lead homicide investigator on the scene on that day and that and proper protocols are not followed, that means evidence is either missed, destroyed, trampled upon. Do you think that that's part of what happened? I know we're going to get into into this incredible story of their lives and their family drama. Yeah, and a hundred percent. That's that's the the problem, uh, as we all know uh, from watching police shows. The first forty eight hours in a murder investigation is key. For the first six weeks, what the police were asking was, why would Barry kill Honey? Uh, did he have? Uh, was there cancer? Was there a financial issue that would cause him to kill his wife and take his own life? They were not asking, and I've got all the police interview statements. They're not asking who would do it. They're asking, why would your father do it or why would Barry have, have killed Honey? And that led to uh, just a cascade of, of errors and, and missteps. Uh, they don't take elimination DNA and fingerprints for nine months after the bodies are discovered. So even though they took fingerprints and DNA found at the scene, they had no idea if it was a, a cleaning person or a realtor uh, or you know a personal trainer whose whose fingerprints were there uh, for nine months. It's embarrassing in Canada's largest city to see that this sort of thing can happen. And why I've been so focused on this is that, uh, and I have covered cases that are of, of less note. If it can happen in a case like this, as you pointed out, where they're billionaires with all these resources what is happening in these other cases that go below the radar. I'm stunned. There's a part of me that can't fathom that this is incompetence. I'm always suspicious and thinking, oh, did someone purposely make this go the other way? I've certainly uh, explored that. Uh, there are people that are friends with the Shermans who wondered, uh, you know, was the fix in? Uh, another theory is that maybe the police from the start, from the very uh, beginning, have their eyes on a suspect or suspects and that they've done all this to create a, you know, a mirage so mm. that they can gather wiretap information. I've gone down that road. I've not found anything like that. And I think this is a case of incompetence. I do think that now, uh, years later, the police are on the right track. The problem is that this case, uh, any evidence collected has been tainted by, uh, you know, the dueling investigations, police, private investigation, media, obviously. 
So it's going to be difficult uh, should this ever get to court. A lot of holes for a smart defense lawyer to to poke holes through. Absolutely. So let's go back to the crime. And well, you know what? Before we get to the crime, just tell me a little bit about Barry and Honey and why this was so extraordinary, uh, given their wealth, their prominence, where they lived. I mean, this is very unusual. Billionaires just don't get murdered every day. Yeah, they're they're uh, fascinating people. I've spent uh, uh, hundreds of hours with uh, close friends of, of theirs uh, and you know, also people that uh, weren't too fond of them as well. And I mean, Barry is a, a genius. He uh, a Canadian, but went to MIT, uh, got a master's and a PhD in just a couple of years in, in the 60s. He was going to be a, a rocket scientist, was going to work at NASA, actually, and then uh, decided to get into the generic drug field, which in the 1960s was a real new uh, startup and uh, decided he'd make his millions there. And, and he does. Honey, uh, unlike Barry, uh, who Barry grew up uh, middle class uh, in a nice part of Toronto, uh, Honey is a product of, of uh, the Holocaust. Her parents were survivors of Nazi slave camps. Uh, she herself was born in a displaced persons camp after the Second World War. She comes to uh, uh, to Canada with her family. Uh, she goes to school. She becomes a teacher. And it's actually through a friend of a friend that she and Barry meet in the early 1970s. And and you know, Barry is building his business. Honey is trying to help him and working as a teacher. Uh, they end up having a family with four kids. And by the time they're in their 40s, they're, they're multimillionaires. And by the time they're in their 50s, they're multi-billionaires. Uh, Apotex is a generic drug company that's, uh, I think it's about the eighth largest in the world. And uh, uh, which, you know, and certainly the biggest in Canada. Uh, and he knew how to, uh, to work the generic drug system and, and uh, a real smart guy. Yeah. So the last time that they were seen alive was on December 13th. They were preparing to sell their house, as I understand. They were building a, a new house. So there was a lot going on. It's also close to the holidays. It's the middle of December. And it's interesting because that's the last time that they're seen alive. And then they're found two days later on the 15th of December in the home, shockingly, by the real estate agent who's touring people through the house, thinks that the bodies that she sees on the other side of the pool are either part of a prank or something left over from Halloween. I mean, every aspect of this is is hard to fathom at times when we're talking about this crime. So. Um, and she calls 911 or your version of 911. And yeah, and it's called 911. Uh, yeah, she calls 911. Uh, police uh, show up uh, and the Shermans, uh, I've uh, published stories detailing the, you know, the state of their bodies. They're, they're clearly dead. Uh, they've been dead for 36 hours uh, in the pool room. And where they are in the, the swimming pool room, uh, this is a 12,000 square foot house. They are literally and exactly as far away as you can get from the front door of that house. And they're in a pool that hasn't been, uh, the deck hasn't been cleaned for three weeks. Uh, nobody uses the pool. The kids uh, are, are grown and, and uh, the Shermans are not ones to go down and do laps. And uh, yeah, they're discovered. And uh, the first thing that the realtor uh, says to 911 operator is someone has killed my clients. I mean, in her mind, having seen this macabre tableau, there's no doubt that they are murdered. I mean, just to understand, they are on, in a seated position on the deck of the pool, uh, but they're tipped back like this. And so the belts are under their back of their neck, which uh, having seen the, the photos uh, and talked to you know, law enforcement uh, sources that there's no way that that is how you would commit suicide if you did. And Barry as a generic drug kingpin had access to lots of drugs if he wanted to, uh, to take care of that and which he didn't. And so, yeah, a crazy scene and you're right. It doesn't happen uh, every day. Uh, thank goodness. No, it's, it's everything about this is astonishing. And if it, if it is obvious to, a lay person, that these two people have been killed. It should have been obvious to all the other detectives. And I don't know if the protocol is the same there as it is here. It is supposed to be not always followed that you treat every death in which you do not know the cause 
as a potential homicide and then you work backwards and rule it or lower it, meaning, you know, you go from homicide down to accidental to, you know, all, all these other options. That is the protocol in, in in Canada and certainly the Toronto Police Force. This is just a case of, of, of mistakes were made. Uh, and a junior pathologist who didn't want to, uh, in his mind, go out on a limb and say it's a double murder and police that were not pushing the issue and a, you know, a lead homicide detective who who doesn't go to the crime scene. Uh, within a few hours of the uh, of the bodies being discovered, the, the junior homicide detective uh, assigned the case, he gives a press conference outside of Barry and Honey's home and he says this, at this stage, we have found no sign of force entry and we have no suspects, uh, no outstanding suspects to be going after. And that is a, tel- a telegraph to all the media that has showed up for this impromptu press conference on the front lawn of the Sherman's home. Uh, this is a murder-suicide. And and the journalists, I was not involved for a few weeks, but the journalists who, who were involved say that it just didn't make sense to them. But this is what happened. And then, and then that, of course, caused this domino effect, which has messed up the early part of the investigation. Yeah. And, and you, can't, you just can't recover from this. Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends, or just even to master a new skill. But it's not always simple when you're bogged down by textbooks and structure classes. That's why so many people trust Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn, like Spanish, French, Italian, Chinese, and more. You won't just be studying English translations. The Rosetta Stone intuitive process helps you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com rs10 today. Hi, this is Amy Poehler here to tell you about a new improvised show from Paper Kite Podcasts, the team that brought you Say More with Dr. Sheila. Check out our new parody podcast, Women Talking About Murder. It's a show about women talking about murder. Every episode features special guests, twists, turns, and the mystery of a missing co-host. Available on the Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash recommend today. So um, they have four at the time of the murders. They were, I believe, 70 and 75. They have four adult children at this point. And the, as the time goes by, the children end up ultimately offering a total of $35 million for a tip that will lead to the arrest of the killer. That's some serious money, not the kind of money we usually hear for rewards. And that seems to not have generated much. Well, I mean, police don't love uh, the idea of a reward because the reward, uh, while it could generate a a good tip, also generates a lot of tips that are not good. Uh, Within a year of the uh, investigation beginning, uh, the Sherman family offers a $10 million reward uh, and that just has sat, that sat there for four, almost five years. And then on the fifth anniversary last year, Alexandra Sherman, who is one of the three daughters, there's a son and three daughters, Alexandra puts out a statement saying that she misses her parents every day and keeping on the philanthropy of, of her parents, but also says that the reward is still in place. Within a, the $10 million reward, within a couple of days, Jonathan Sherman, the, the son, the only son, he puts out a statement saying, in fact, I'll add $25 million to it. And 
that has caused a lot of people to come forward to both myself and, and to the police and to the, the now defunct private investigative team. But in my opinion, these are, are not solid leads that are coming forward. They're, they're people that are just in it for the money. And since most people, most people are murdered, killed by people they know, although it's always possible that this was random, but there was a lot going on in Barry Sherman's life as far as the business side of it, because I think we can't not look at that side. So he had, you know, several lawsuits going at the time, I believe at one point, not too long before he was murdered, one of the cousins or cousins was suing him, uh, claiming a stake in the company. Barry prevailed in that case. But then there was another case involving uh, a patent in which Barry lost that case and was going to have to pay up some serious money to settle that case. Do you believe that any of these legal issues had anything to do with the murders? Well, in, in, the, in my podcast, I have an episode called The Perfect Storm, which uh, harkens back to the uh, uh, Sebastian Younger, who coined the phrase perfect storm, dealing with the big uh, storm off the East Coast in the early 90s, where a whole bunch of factors come together. I think those things that you just uh, uh, identified factor in one specific way. It's a, they're, the killer or killers, and I think there probably were two killers, knew all about all this turmoil in Barry's life. They knew that his, uh, his cousins had sued him um, and were angry. Uh, they were suing him for a billion dollars. They believed that that uh, Barry had stolen their father. Their father was a generic pioneer that Barry bought the company from in the 60s. They believed that Barry had stolen their their uh, their future from them, and, and he owed them a billion dollars. And Barry had just won uh, the case. I mean, just won, and he just won a, set, a legal settlement uh, just a, you know, a week before. And the cousins were angry at, at Barry, for, and the cousins have told me they had nothing to do with this case. Uh, although the one cousin has has told everybody that he wanted Barry dead, that was going on. Yes, Barry had just lost a five hundred and eighty million dollar uh, lawsuit uh, in one of his generic drug patents. Uh, there were also certain people that would have known Barry uh, well enough to know that he was missing, who just were not around. Uh, that week. And so I think that somebody chose that time because of all the legal uh, uh, turmoil in his life and also because certain people were away. So I think the people who were involved in the, in the deaths uh, uh, knew the Shermans. I don't think it is some uh, business case, but I think the business cases were used uh, because who wouldn't want to have a sort of murder on the Orient Express, a whole bunch of suspects out there. Uh, and that's why that time was chosen. That's my opinion. And if you are correct, so far it's working. <laughs> no suspects. Yeah. And, you know, there's also uh, uh, there's been a, there's theories out there that uh, uh, this is some sort of international hit job. I don't think that's the case. I have always believed um, and been told by law enforcement that uh, strangulation is a, is a personal crime. A hitman or hit person, I guess we have totally. to say these days, comes in to Toronto. They're probably going to shoot Barry coming out of his office. And in fact, Barry has given interviews over the years saying that somebody one day might shoot him coming out of his office because he comes out at 10 o'clock at night. And I, I, international assassins who I guess do exist uh, don't come into your house because that would raise the risk of being found out and of leaving something behind. So that's although, although the fact of how they were tied up, the fact that no one knew there is a, a little bit of professionalism to this, either the killer or killers were unbelievably lucky or there was some professional aspect to it. Yeah, I mean, the the way the bodies are displayed and they are displayed, uh, one of the things that, that I uncovered was that in a room close to the swimming pool room, there, is, there are two life-size sculptures that were made in the 1970s by a, a gentleman in Philadelphia who makes sculptures out of, uh, let's say, nice garbage. So, for example, the femurs of these two life-size sculptures, one male and one female, 
uh, are, are made of skateboard, uh, parts of skateboards. And they're, they're quite, uh, you know, beautiful in, in looking at these sculptures. Uh, the male sculpture has a leg crossed over the other and Barry's legs are crossed passively, uh, although in a slightly different way uh, in, in the actual murder tableau. They are, I believe, positioned by somebody who what, did not really know what they were doing and thought that that would make it look like a murder-suicide. And I think that person or persons must have just been uh, chuckling uh, after you know, weeks went by when it was being considered a murder or suicide thinking, yeah, we know we pulled that off. Uh, I, I don't think this is a professional hit job. Mm. I also don't believe in coincidence. So the fact that you say that the way the bodies were staged, because you've seen the photographs in comparison to this unique sculpture that they had in the family house, that to me does not seem like coincidence. Whatever the meaning may be, I'm not sure. Yeah, and I don't know what the meaning is. I can tell you that if looking at the, the crime scene photos, uh, Barry is, um, how would I say this? He, he is posed in a nicer way. His, his legs are crossed. Uh, he always wore glasses and his glasses are perched perfectly on his nose, which if somebody had thrashed about sure. you know, uh, committing suicide, they would probably have fallen off. And so they've been, in my opinion, placed after uh, he was deceased. There are no markings on Barry's face at all, but Honey was hit. Uh, she's struck uh, right out here on her, on her right, uh, just below her right eye. Uh, there's blood on her face and there's a bit of blood on the railing where the um, uh, belts are tied. I can take from that that somebody had more uh, anger towards Honey than to Barry. And I, I listened only to parts of your podcast. I have not listened to the whole thing, um, but I did hear this segment where Honey wasn't necessarily um, considered a, as sweet as her name. <laughs> yeah. Now, I full disclosure, my entree to this story, because it was really hard to get the Sherman family and friends to speak to me was by going to their close friends and saying, just you know, tell me about Honey. Let's not talk about the murder yet. And I end up striking up these uh, quite good relationships with uh, with their very best friends, their couple friends, if you will. Uh, and you know, Barry's best friend from from when he was a kid, uh, uh, couples that they traveled with. Uh, uh, you know, Honey's uh, golf girls. She was a, a golfer and liked to go away on trips in her you know ten year old Lexus SUV and. And, uh, you know, they all kick in gas money and, and kick in money for sandwiches on the road. I mean, these, she doesn't act like a billionaire. But those friends, once they got comfortable with me, did say, yes, Honey was sharp-tongued. She was sharp-tongued uh, to, to waiters and uh, to wait staff for sure. Uh, the other thing they noticed, uh, we haven't talked about the fundraising, but the Shermans were very philanthropic. They gave away hundreds of millions of dollars. But they also raised money. They're really good, particularly Honey, at getting people to donate money. And so a number of her friends have told me that they would be at a party. Honey would lock eyes with them and then move right past them because, you know, Joe Smith over there, who's got $100 million, that's who she wants to talk to. And she probably did get some money off of Joe Smith. The friends learned over time that that's just the way their friend mm -hmm. is. Uh, you know, the, the Shermans, the fascination for me of this is that they are, um, they're, they're not black and white people. There's a lot of, uh, you know, Barry could be quite rude to people. Uh, he would go to, uh, to a concert with, uh, be invited to a concert, uh, be some, you know, Barbara Streisand, for example, on the stage, he'd be on his Blackberry, not even looking the entire time. Uh, he's very- Well, he is a billionaire, isn't he? Billionaires are constantly chasing that dollar. <laughs> He is, but I, but I think the, the emails he would probably be sending at that time as described to me were probably just checking in with one of the plants in India. I, it was just that he didn't care about, uh, didn't like music, didn't like, uh, you know, theater, uh, would get into arguments about, uh, you know, Toronto's hockey team, why they called the Toronto Maple Leafs, uh, you know, they're not from Toronto, he would say they're from here and here, and he would just get into these yeah. physical discussions and just watch the game, Barry. 
<laughs> right, exactly. So, but yeah, to your point, and you're quite right. Uh, honey could be sharp-tongued and uh, not nice to people. She could also be extraordinarily nice to people if they were trying to get medical care to hospitals she was involved with. Mm-hmm. Ready to start talking to your kids about financial literacy? Meet Greenlight, the debit card and money app that teaches kids and teens how to earn, save, spend wisely, and invest with your guardrails in place. Parents can send instant money transfers, automate allowance, and more. Plus, keep an eye on spending with real-time notifications. Join more than 6 million families building healthy financial habits together on Greenlight. Get your first month free at greenlight.com slash odyssey. That's greenlight.com slash odyssey. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Now, I find it interesting that even though they were so wealthy that Barry drove around in something, what, a Dodge? He drove a Dodge. They didn't have bodyguards and he ate at Swiss Chalet, my favorite chicken place in Canada, by the way. <laughs> Love their rotisserie chicken. But is yeah, that true? That is true. Uh, he never had a Dodge. Uh, when he died, he had uh, a, a two-door Mustang convertible. A Mustang, but, excuse me, a Mustang, not, yes. Not the top of a line. He had a Chrysler uh, uh, two-door. He, he loved ragtops. Uh, and uh, yeah, it, it was 10 years old. He had just had a fender bender a uh, few months before and was really proud that he got it fixed up. I mean, this is a car that the brakes uh, were almost non-existent, according to his uh, his executive assistant. You put She took it for a drive to get Swiss Chalet, uh, your favorite food, and her foot went right to the floor. And she said, Barry, what are you doing? You're a billionaire. And he said, ah, I like my car. Uh, Honey had a 10-year-old Lexus SUV, probably a little nicer vehicle. She had just hit a deer coming back from mooching uh, at a cottage. What? And I say that because, of course, they didn't own a cottage, but occasionally they would go to somebody's cottage. I mean, if you were a billionaire, how could you possibly own a cottage? And um, she hit a deer, and then she found somebody who would fix uh, atrocious damage to the vehicle for $5,000 and just kept driving it she was they were proud of this she she had a, a pair of workout shorts and she worked out a lot uh for 20 years and she would darn them herself when they got holes in it wow okay so frugal on on some level and very generous on others i i want to get back to the turmoil that was going on with the lawsuits um because that's really going to open the door to the conversation to the relationship with the only son so at that time that he lost the patent lawsuit, correct? He was going to have to pay $580 million to settle that. Now, in the two weeks prior to his murder, he asked his son, Jonathan, to give him back something like $50,000 of a $125 million loan. Is that correct? Uh, uh, sorry, 50 to $60 million. Um, so 50 to $60 million and Jonathan has told me that his father advanced him about $120 million over the years for a couple of businesses Jonathan uh, was funding. I think it's from based on my my reporting, it's more like $200 million. But anyways, um, Barry uh, had this uh, big debt coming and he is a billionaire, but at the time he wasn't that liquid. A, a lot of his fortune was tied up in his company. And so he was sending emails to to uh, his son, which I have. In fact, his son gave them to me uh, saying, you know, uh, Jonathan, I, I need 50 to 60 million dollars and I need you to put mortgages basically on the properties that that I've helped you buy and pay me that money back. That never took place. Uh, Jonathan said, uh, you know, the events of the murder overtook uh, things and he never had to to do that. And now the four uh, children are all billionaires themselves. So he declaratively, Jonathan, I believe, said to you that he did not kill his father over because there was some speculation. It's like, well, you know, maybe something was going on. This money gets called back. Was there any hard feeling? Yeah. I mean, I had this five hour interview in a in a quite a chilly garage that he selected for our, our interview. 
back during the pandemic. And and Jonathan, he did provide me with these email, uh, emails between uh, himself and his father. He said, when I put the question to him, he said, uh, quote, uh, I'm not going to kill my father uh, over 50 to $60 million. The issue, uh, Jonathan, we can't really discuss it without telling you that what he disclosed to me is that his sister, Alexandra, she's the one who's most involved in the philanthropy now. His sister, Alexandra, according to Jonathan, thinks that he did it. And I've heard this from sources as well. So that gave me the opportunity to ask Jonathan, well, did you have anything to do with it? And he said, no, I I didn't. And he said, I'm the only person uh, who knows that I didn't do it. Uh, Is, uh, you know, Jonathan a person of interest or a suspect? Uh, I asked him that. He said, I would expect all the family members would have been looked into. Uh, He's quite open about this in our conversation. And, uh, you know, I I just have to, uh, to say that I would not have had the information about his father uh, actually asking for 50 to, 60, 50 to 60 million dollars back from him if he hadn't given me the emails. Correct. So he provides you willingly with this information, information which in some ways really isn't flattering and does cast some suspicion on him. But and he addresses it. And, and I know in your podcast series, that you have an episode where he finally agrees to talk to you. This is in addition to all the emails that you share in the podcast. So he agrees to talk to you. You know, when I when I was listening to that episode and he's expressing to you all the reasons why he doesn't want to comment or talk to you, they made perfectly good sense. Like the reporter in me wants the person to talk. The reporter in me also knows sometimes when you talk, you just open up a can of worms you may not see even if you're innocent. Yeah, absolutely. I I mean, in my, I've been doing this for almost 40 years now. uh, I will say that families uh, involved in in unsolved murders do typically talk to the media. Uh, You know, we see it all, you know, in both of our countries. And so I was always surprised how reluctant they all were to speak. But you add to that that they're billionaires and uh, and they were going into this very private people. You, If you Google uh, trying to find out information about any of the four of them prior to December 13th, 2017, you'll find almost nothing there. And they were very private, very much in the shadow of their father, uh, which and, and each one has gone off in a different uh, direction now. Jonathan is... Is, it runs a self-storage business and a marina, and he was building a canoe when I was interviewing him. Um, uh, Kalen, the youngest, has bought uh, part of a hotel in Israel uh, and is dabbling in real estate. Uh, Lauren, the eldest, she's in the west coast of Canada as a yoga instructor. Um, and Alexandra has launched, uh, she's the one that has, according to Jonathan, thinks that, that he was involved in the murder of their parents. Uh, and she's told the police this, this too. Uh, I know that uh, from my sources. Alexander's launched a music career. Uh, very different people. Uh, and she uh, trained as a nurse uh, and is working on a master's for public health. She's the one that that is, is the most, um, I would say, I've always heard was, was the closest um, to, to Barry, certainly, Jonathan says that she wasn't that close to to their mother. And, uh, you know, there's, there's squabbles and you add millions and billions to it. It makes it difficult, I think, to have a, have a normal upbringing. In, in fact, impossible. Yeah, I would think so. It, now, something did happen after the murders. Police on one of the anniversaries released this videotape, this surveillance video that we're going to show. I believe we showed it on the last podcast uh, saying that. They had accounted for everyone on the street and this person who looks like a man walking in the snow, not walking particularly fast. um, They cannot identify. Could this be the suspect? What do you make of this? Yeah, the police uh, released that as part of a uh, I've had this, uh, although not a lawyer, I've been leading a a litigation in Canada to get uh, police documents, witness statements, things like that, unsealed videos, videos. photos and and so when this one was released uh, around the time of of one of my victories in our 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 court system it it was a big shock to everybody that the police were putting this out four years after when people's memories had dimmed 
And as you describe, yeah, it's a person who's walking uh, away from the Sherman home. He's about a mile away from it at this point. Uh, but they say that he had, you know, had was basically retracing a route. He had come close to the Sherman home. Not a lot of cameras in this neighborhood, despite it being a wealthy neighborhood. And he's walking with what the police say is a, is an unusual gait uh, called drop foot, where he picks his right foot up a little bit uh, as he walks. Um, just looking at the video, and it's very grainy, looks to be, a, I would say, a portly 55-year-old man, just throwing that out there. But he could also be a 35-year-old person uh, trying to to look older. Uh, it's winter. He's wearing a coat. And you're right. He's not walking that quickly. The police came upon this by getting two terabytes of video from the neighborhood and from other you know, uh, street cameras and things like that. And we don't have a lot of cameras in Canada compared to, to the U.S. This is not like New York City with cameras or, or London, certainly. But there are some cameras and they say that he is the only person that they he's not walking his dog. They can't identify him by talking to the neighbors. And uh, they say in their documents, this is the killer. They don't say one of the killers. They don't say the lookout. They say this is the killer. They don't know that. That's a supposition. They don't know that. How do they know that? No, that's that's a supposition. That's a supposition. Yeah. I mean, I guess they're trying to clean up for the mess they made years earlier, but I don't think that video is, is really helping at all. It's not bad to put the video out, but as you say, why release it so many years later? Release it immediately if you're trying to find killers or a killer. Yeah. I, I think the, the events of the, of the, you know, the discovery of the bodies, the, the, the misidentification of the manner of death, uh, it just kind of overtook them and we, you didn't have the A-team on it. There are, I know, some very good homicide investigators that would have loved to be involved in this and they just were not involved. It's very, very unfortunate. So is this a cold case and is there a different process in Canada to handle a cold case? Yeah, I recently interviewed the head of our cold case squad uh, and he says, you know, this is not a cold case because for something to be cold, they have to reach a point where they're not getting any new information. That's the, the, the test for it. What they are doing right now, and I'll get some more answers on this in, in the fall, is they are trying to find information in five countries internationally. Um, I mean, one of them, I won't say overseas because one of them obviously could be the United States and we have a shared border. Uh, but they say this information is critical to the case and they got some of it in from one of the countries by the way they won't say which countries um, they got some information in but it wasn't complete and they've gone back for more it's uh you know in the movies you just jump on a on a plane go over there grab the information at least in our country that doesn't happen there's a, a legal protocol with a treaty um I think they're trying to get some information related to uh, uh, payments that were made to somebody who was involved. And I don't think it's the international hitman. I think it's maybe a local person who ended up with some uh, some benefit for being involved in this. That's 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 Kevin's theory. Uh, but they're they're still awaiting this information. And when I go back to court in the fall, I'll hopefully find out if they got it and maybe what it was. Oh, very interesting. I, I guess it, you know, if you look at it from the adult children's perspective, so much attention has been focused on them and any other family member. And then you look at business associates, ex-business associates. So I, I, I guess there's a pretty wide net of people who could be potential suspects here, yet this really has never gone to that point. Do you know whether family members were brought in to the police department for formal interrogation? That's a, that's a great question. So I have uh, been able to obtain the witness statements from the four children. Uh, these were done um, in people's homes. Uh, they were not uh, formal inter interviews, although in a couple of cases, I can tell from the description of the interviews that, that they were recorded. Um, when I'm looking at a witness statement that it's included in a, um, a 
document called a, a information to obtain, which is backup for search warrant. These are not search warrants on their homes. These mm -hmm. are for banking information, all sorts of things. And they, they, I think the protocol is the same in, in the U.S. They have to provide full and frank disclosure to a magistrate, to a judge saying, you know, we want to search this. And, and so they're looking to get the, uh, for example, in one case, the, the, the kids to say, uh, Barry Sherman had a Blackberry, for example, back then. Okay. And right. so, but in that there's other uh, pieces of information uh, that are helpful to me. And so at the top of them, I can tell who did the interview and was it, um, was it recorded, uh, were any rights read? And that doesn't seem to have happened. They were more, I would say, general uh, interviews. And in fact, the Toronto police haven't done any interviews for well over two years. They, they've stopped doing interviews. They're just trying to get information through, through warrants. Um, so yeah, so the formal interviews, uh, the, the, one of the cousins, there was a formal interview because he had, had been, by his comments to the media had made it seem right. like he was a suspect. And he says he's not. Uh, uh, so yeah, and I always look in these interviews to see who did the interview. Did the lead homicide investigator do the interview? And I haven't seen that yet. So Kevin, you know, every reporter has a theory. I'm not going to ask you to point out the killer here, but there has to be something or a few things in this case that either bug you, you can't shake, or you think that's where the answer is. So however it is you want to address it in this case, what is that thing or things that just bug you about it that you think the answer could be in there? Well, I think it's important to, to find out, and I'm, I'm getting closer, who knew uh, about their movements on that particular day. Uh, I've recently learned that that Honey uh, had no passwords on her, any of her devices. So no, oh, you can't. Uh, no. And Barry's passwords were one, two, three, four. <laughs> and so I now know that that <laughs> anybody who had access to their devices could find out, you know, you know what was going on on that day. The other thing that's really important to me, and I've certainly reported this, uh, is that Honey's will was never found, and, and it's been put, gone through probate, Barry's has, and, and Barry's will leaves virtually everything to Honey if, uh, if he dies before her, and with, with Honey gone, it's divided equally among the four kids, and at different ages with the final payout when they're 35. I interviewed a person who told me that Honey did have a will. And in fact, a couple of weeks before uh, they were murdered, uh, Honey told this person, uh, one of Honey's service providers uh, said to the person, you gotta get your will in order. Everybody should, you're a young person. And by the way, I was just at my lawyer's office, Honey says to this person, getting my, my will updated. No will has apparently ever been found for Honey. But there's a person, a lawyer who I've named in my in the series, who was somehow involved in the estate planning, and he calls Barry at 9:01 p.m. Uh, that Wednesday, and Barry's already dead at that point. That person, being a lawyer, says I can't talk due to privilege, but I think people like that have the answers. I think Honey, I think the fact that Honey was killed was is significant. Uh, if you want to, Honey had no interest in Apotex at all if you were wanted to go at um barry for some business reasons barry's the target not honey and uh and i think the will is important and so i'm pursuing that to see if uh if i can uh, gain more traction and find out about that so why did honey have to die that's the question yeah kevin i find that fascinating because if indeed honey had gone to an attorney's office to deal with the will that attorney should be, I would think, because of the murder, be speaking, even if only on limited terms, with police. So if this this person has has to have been identified, correct? As That's you said, correct. they have and, this person. So, right. right. So in I only know about that attorney from sources providing me with um, various call logs from that day. Uh, they are in these police documents but that the portion of that is still uh, still sealed. So so I have been able to find this through sources. 
And the fact that the sources gave it to me makes me think that it's important and people wanted that information out there, which it now is. Uh, yeah, that, that lawyer, I hope, is talking to the police. I've asked that lawyer uh, if he's talking to the police and, and uh, he says he can't answer any questions. So uh, I, I sometimes do these stories or information in the podcast, first of all, to educate the the public and the listeners, but also to uh, light a bit more of a fire under the police. So if they've missed that, they should check on that. Mm -hmm. Fascinating. Well, Kevin, this has really been a great conversation. I always enjoy talking with um, investigative reporters who really have like this one case that they've been working for years. You're like, you know, I, I, I know you're very well sourced. And the fact that you've got a book, <laughs> a podcast, and a docu-series <laughs> it certainly um, shows that uh, you are the person to talk to on this case. It's been a, a pleasure to have you. Can you please remind everyone where they can find more information either on you, follow you, find everything? Because it's a great case. Oh, thanks a lot. Uh, well, I mean, I, I report for the Toronto Star, Canada's uh, largest daily uh, and I, my podcast is available wherever you get your favorite podcasts, uh, uh, all those, uh, those uh, places with some bonus content uh, in, in certain places as well. Uh, my book, uh, The Billionaire Murders, uh, is uh, um, available uh, wherever you get your favorite books, of course. And, uh, and it's, everything has the same name, The Billionaire Murders, uh, and our, our documentary series is coming out on, on Crave, which is a Canadian streamer and presumably will be available in the U.S. Uh, as well. And that's out now. Yeah, that's incredible. I can't. I hope that this does get solved. And I hope you get a chance to break this case. That would be great after all your hard work, because I, hope, I don't hope have so. a lot of confidence in the Toronto police right now. My money's on you, Kevin. I hope so, too. Thanks for having me on. Absolutely. Uh, you can find me on all social media at Anna G News, Anna with one N. You can find this episode of our podcast, all podcasts, wherever you get your podcasts, you can subscribe to our YouTube channel and watch. You can also sign up to receive our newsletter at truecrimedaily.com. Uh, so thank you for the special edition of True Crime Daily, the podcast. As we always say at the end, don't do crime.